0: What up, family? This is a sermon from the downtown congregation of Park Church. May it bless your soul as you dig deeper into God's word. More resources and info are online at parkchurch.org. Psalm 112. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord.
1: All right, good morning again. My name is Matt, one of the congregational pastors here downtown. Um, Last week, I had the chance to finally get up to the highlands and preach a couple times, which was uh, terrible timing because it was allergy season. I had like this throat problem, and so I went from one message to two. So thank you for... Thanks for containing everything in one service down here for now. Like, we do want to outgrow that, though. So continue to be inviting your friends, invite coworkers, invite people off the street to come and meet Jesus, be introduced to Jesus, because we want to be growing in healthy ways, both by bringing people that we already know about and by introducing more and more people to Jesus. Um, In that connection, I just want to say a quick word of thanks to everyone last weekend, Friday night and Saturday during midday, and then Sunday after the service, had a number of different volunteers who were just out here on the corner stopping passers-by and just saying, like, hey, what do you think is wrong with the neighborhood, and what do you think are some potential solutions? How could people that are down here wanting to love the neighborhood, wanting to show compassion, wanting to seek justice, like, what are some things that we could do? And we got 97 surveys um, completely filled out with those answers, not our perspective, but the neighborhood's perspective. And we've put that into a little bit of a database. And what I now wanna invite you to is kind of a next step is some of you who are maybe more interested in some of the justice and mercy ministries that we have downtown. um, We would love to invite you back to a conversation around that data and say, what are some next steps? And some, some obvious next steps would be to choose some things that are kind of low risk, high reward, like immediate impact, like just simple changes that we can make to the way that we love our neighbors. Um, and then kind of from there, look at some mid-range and even some long-term things that we may believe that God is calling us to. Um, so continue to look in your, your email for that. Make sure you're signed up for our various uh, e-newsletters through the parkchurch.org website. And some of that information will be coming out through that. Some will be coming directly from me. And we'd love to engage a bunch of you in that conversation. Um, Caitlin will say more about this at the end of the service, but um, like an hour from now, we're going to throw up this garage door over here and an ice cream truck, like not like, the, not like the scary ice cream truck that makes its way around the neighborhood with the music, you know, not that kind of ice cream truck, but a high end, nice ice cream truck is going to pull into the building. And we're gonna line up all our kiddos over here. And it's Park Kids Elevate Sunday. So your kids, if you have children, they got a ticket for a free ice cream. But we invite the rest of you to stay around, just treat yourself. Um, In other words, like buy some ice cream from these good people who are coming to share with us. Because we're here to celebrate the kids and by you buying ice cream, that enables us to do this. So um, Caitlin will have a couple details at the conclusion of our service this morning. Um, Let's pray, and we'll be right back in Psalm 112 this morning. Heavenly Father, we just pause to ask you to work through these words that you have inspired. We pray that as we look at this kind of prototypical righteous person, that you would speak to each one of us, men and women and children, to understand the things of the Lord. Um, Don't let these things be so familiar to us that we are bored by them, but um, provoke in us a a deeper love and affection ultimately for you, Lord. We want to love you more than we love things from you. Um, Just continue to perfect our worship here, Lord, this morning. Let the words of my mouth... And the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. How many of you would like to be happy? Okay, some, some no. There's a word for people that say no to that question. It's not a nice word. Um, Blaise Pascal, the French mathematician and philosopher, once wrote this, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action, of every man, even of those who hang themselves. It's a universal desire. We want to be happy, even sometimes when we're kind of inflicting emotional or even physical pain on ourselves or on a relationship. It's because ultimately we believe that there's happiness, that we're designed for something. And we come to the very first verse of this particular psalm. I want you to see these words, blessed is the man who, and then we have the rest of this psalm. And I want to get it right out of the way. Um, we hear man and we think man versus woman. This is not a gender specific word. I want you to just hear blessed is the one who, and I may say that several times this morning, it's talking to men and women. It's a gender neutral word, but just blessed is the one who lives out this Psalm. And I'm sharing this because the word blessed there means happy, okay? It means more than happiness, but it doesn't mean less than being happy, being satisfied. But then what you see here in the psalm is the writer goes on to describe something that's very counterintuitive, very countercultural, because if you stepped outside these walls and you said, hey, do you want to be happy? People would say, yes, I want to be happy. Okay, how are you going to achieve that happiness? And virtually everyone in our society would say, I need freedom. I need autonomy. I need no restraints from other people telling me what to do. If I can choose my own path and just get the rewards of my own labor, I will be happy. So leave me alone, right? Let me do my thing. And you come to this psalm, and it says, if you want to be happy, then you have to be righteous. And I think that's worth exploring this morning. So here's my theme. I'll give it to you right at the beginning here. Basically, what the psalmist is saying here is true happiness. is not something that God wants a believer to turn away from and be like, you've heard that false dichotomy of like, I just want to be holy. I just want to walk with God. You no, know, God wants you to be truly happy, but true happiness is the byproduct of a faith that transforms both our current lifestyle and our future hope. You know, if we go directly after happiness, we, in a sense, often just find ourselves pushing it further and further away, or it's like the, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, and you're walking toward the end of the rainbow, and it just, the, the closer you get, the, it just keeps moving, right? And happiness is like that. If you go directly toward happiness, you don't get the happiness you want. If you go toward what we'll ultimately see is Christ, we get the happiness described here. So we're going to explore this this morning with these four C words. We're going to look at the character of the righteous, the conduct of the righteous, the commendation of the righteous, and then the confidence of the righteous. So let's just jump right in. The character of the righteous And there's an interesting parallelism here because the writer gives us basically three fundamental qualities. You can see them in verse four, where he says, this righteous person is gracious, merciful, and righteous. These words gracious and merciful are very similar. They mean uh, compassionate. They mean merciful toward basically two categories of people. You're merciful toward those who are repenting and need your forgiveness, and you're merciful toward people who are just, pitiful. They have a, a physical need or an emotional need, a mental need, a spiritual need, and you see their neediness and you feel mercy and compassion toward them. The second word there, the word merciful, actually speaks of a deep and tender love, kindness. But then this third word almost feels like something different. The word righteous it's interesting. It comes from kind of like the engineering world or the, the, the world of construction because it's a word, word that means level or straight. It refers to something that conforms to an existing known standard. And I want you to just picture with me if you were building a shed in your backyard, let alone building a home or something, and if your only tool were a foot-long ruler, you know, and you're, you're holding that ruler up and you're trying to lay that first wall and get it up and you're just kind of eyeballing that ruler, do you suppose over the course of 12 inches you could be out of plumb by a half an inch, maybe? Well, this is how important it is to conform to the standard of something that's right or level because you know something, the height of the Freedom Tower in lower Manhattan if you were only off a half foot per, f- or a half inch per foot, you would be off 74 feet at the top of that tower. And so he uses a word that says we need to live in conformity with God's standards so our lives aren't off just by a few degrees, but extrapolated out over a lifetime of behaviors and attitudes, we are way out of line with what God calls us to. Now, I want to just pause and note that we often treat these three characteristics as either or. We all know people who are gracious and merciful. They're compassionate. They're empathetic. You know, when you're struggling with something, that's the person you want to talk to because they're just going to tell you it's okay, you're fine, you're doing great. And a lot of times these people don't really care or they tend to downplay the stuff in the Bible about like the rules or like, they're not going to say, like, yeah, you're in that mess because you, like, all your friends have warned you about that. Like, you haven't been re- living a, a good life, a righteous life. And, and by the same token, we know people on this side that are just like, they're rules people, man. They love the rules. And they, they just nitpick everything and get it all correct, and yet they're not patient, they're not kind, they don't have empathy. And it's fascinating to me here that the psalmist begins by saying, if you wanna be a righteous person, this is what your character looks like, and it's this juxtaposition, it's this mix of attributes that, that we find very hard to hold together, grace and righteousness. Now, that's what the person is. Let's go on to what this person does, the conduct of the righteous, point two. And there are three key things here as well. Number one, in verse one, notice that the righteous one delights in the Lord's commandments. And maybe to us, that sounds like an oxymoron. That sounds like delighting in a root canal. Sounds like delighting in serious dental work, where you may think to yourself, I know that this work is necessary, but I don't like it. And some of you may feel that way towards God's law or his commands. You may feel like, I know that these are important. I know that these are good, but I don't like them. And so we grudgingly obey his commandments, but delight in them. We're like, that's asking a little bit much. And maybe you would just pause and ask yourself, how do I, in general, feel toward God's commands? as I'm either reading through my Bible on my own or I'm hearing it taught or hearing it preached or hearing it on my favorite podcast and I come across certain commands, I mean, can we acknowledge that in this cultural moment we live in, we are probably sometimes embarrassed by some of God's commands. Like we read something in the Bible and we're like, ugh, I wish that weren't there. It seems kind of arbitrary to me. It seems kind of out there. It seems like we've kind of moved past that kind of thinking. Maybe we have a tendency to treat the commands of God as optional or as onerous. Some of us may be doing hermeneutical gymnastics to say, well, I read this in the text that you, you are not to do these certain things and you're to do these other things. But you know, it doesn't mean what it sounds like it's saying. And that's happening a lot, even in the church today. And I just want to say, right out of the, right out of the gate, I always want to say, like, look, God is God. And if we believe that this is God's word, it, it should not matter to us whether I like certain commands or do not like them, whether they're popular to our culture or unpopular. Because if you travel halfway around the world, it's just a reverse. The things that are popular here would be unpopular there, and the things that are unpopular here would be popular there. So it's not up to us to decide if God is God. But I also want to correct this thinking that God's boundaries are arbitrary, or they're there because God just, you know, he, he forbids the no fun zone, right? And everywhere you turn, it's like there's, there's barricades and boundaries and fences, and they're, they're just preventing you from enjoying life. And I wanna share with you that one of the ways we delight in the commands of God is by coming to understand that his commands exist not to enslave us, but actually to free us, okay? Um, we drive up to Grand Lake often. And so on that drive, we go out I-70 and go up 40, go up over Berthoud Pass. Many of you have probably done that drive on the way to Winter Park or Steamboat or Grand Lake or something like that. And I love driving Berthoud Pass and I love driving it fast, okay? And and my wife has this amazing all-wheel drive Volvo with these amazing tires. So even when it's dumping snow and everybody else is just kind of inching along, we're just, we're just like a cruise missile through there. And it's so much fun. And, uh, and, and, and I'll share with you, this, you know what makes it fun? Is the guardrails. <laughs> because if you were to remove those, just even psychologically, doesn't something change? Like even in good weather? When you realize there's, there's 100, 200, I don't know, 400 foot, Drop off to the switchback below, there are guardrails. And she has this cool little heads up display in her car that you can actually, on live GPS, kind of see turn by turn. So you know, like, I should slow down. And there are signs that even say, like, take this next curve slower. Here's what's ahead. And those boundaries, those guardrails, are not there to remove your enjoyment of driving, it is to free you from anxiety of doing that drive safely and, 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 frankly, as quickly as possible, right? Okay, so I just want us to think through, what is, what is one command of God maybe that is burdensome to you and could you try looking through it with this lens? Why might God have that guardrail in place? You know, a hot button issue in our culture, let alone this month, is sexuality. Why is the Bible so restrictive when it comes to the issue of sexuality? Because it is. I mean, you read it, and I mean, some of you may be reading it, and and it just feels like he's, he's like, no, not that, not that, not that, not that, not with them, not with... And you're just like, man. And I'll say the Bible is restrictive about sexuality because God designed sex and because he wants to free you sexually, to be all that you were designed to be. He's actually sitting on my side of the counselor's desk. I'll tell you, God's trying to preserve you from mountains of guilt and shame. From coming back years later to a counselor and saying, I realized I was manipulated. I got played. And now it hurts. And they're, they're, broken families and shattered lives and there's dysphoria which means something's out of kilter with the way that we think about something so it's just important that we understand this first point the conduct of the righteous is that he or she delights in God's commandments and part of being righteous is that we train our minds and our hearts to receive the commandments of God as the gifts that they are that yes are they setting up boundaries we're all setting up boundaries But as Tim Keller says, it's about accepting the right set of boundaries that actually set us most free, okay? So that's the conduct of the righteous, point one. Now, secondly, verses five and nine, notice that the righteous person gives generously to those in need. And this two words, deals generously, is from the same root word as the word grace, or gracious in the previous verse. So it means to take pity on someone, to have mercy on someone, and that mercy overflows then in generous actions. And you see verse nine, there's literally a distributes freely to the poor, to those in, that, are, that are worse off. There's a distribution, there's a sharing of resources. And I know coming off the year that we're coming off of, some of you may say, you know, I, I, I used to be more generous, but frankly, like I lost my job and my finances are in the tank. And, and I understand that. So I want to just Have us think creatively for just a moment that if if God has not blessed you with a surplus of finances, and by the way, no one thinks they have a surplus of finances, but that's another message. Um, (laughs) God has blessed us with other resources like time, and it may be that you don't have money to be generous with, but you do have time, or you do have a gift that could be invested in someone else to, to lift them from a place of pity and to show them mercy and kindness. And then thirdly, the third conduct, notice this person conducts him or herself with justice. Verse five, this is this famous Hebrew word mishpat, which means to now you have the righteous standard, which is the word righteousness. Mishpat is to render judgments that are according to that righteous standard, and before we all just kind of punt on this one and say, well, it's up to the court system and judges and juries and all that to be doing justice for us, I want us to just think how many times in the course of an ordinary day you make judgment calls about various people, about various situations, about relationships. You, you make an observation in your head, you're making a judgment Or you're hearing this ideology on the news or this ideology or this part of culture or this part of culture are butting up against each other and you are making a judgment in your mind about them. And my question is, what informs that judgment? Or what what is the standard, what is the basis for these flash, moment-by-moment judgments that you're making all throughout the day? Because frankly, like I get on Facebook periodically and I read some different things from believers and I think, that sounds a lot like CNN or Fox News. It doesn't sound like the Bible. Or it sounds like uh, our favorite celebrities and bloggers and authors and talk show personalities and social media influencers. It sounds like politicians and educators, but it doesn't, that's, that's not wisdom from the spirit. And the word justice means that as we see injustice, we are defining that by the word of God and saying, I'm not just going to sit back and think justice, but may our church be known as people who in our everyday affairs are doing justice first and foremost on behalf of others who are receiving injustice. That's what the call of the righteous person is. And again, their judgment is informed by the word of God far more than by what a progressive or a traditional culture calls good or evil. Now, again, I want to just pause here before we go to the third point. And I, this, we're talking about the conduct of the righteous person. And again, you notice this interesting mix of this person's doing justice, but is also generous and delighting in God's word. And again, those are things that we don't often put together. I mean, justice literally means giving each his due. And generosity, grace, and mercy means giving what is not your due. So how do, you, how do you work that out? Is it like sometimes you're supposed to be just and sometimes you're supposed to be like just really nice? And I want to just pause that question for a moment. How do we work that out? And before we come back to that, let me show you point three, the commendation of the righteous. And my point here is this text is filled with examples of things that say, the psalmist is like, if you do this, if you are this kind of person, here is the blessing that God intends to bring to your life. Start in verses one and two. The first commendation of the righteous is blessing and honor. Verse one, Blessed is the man who is described by the balance of this psalm. And again, that word blessed means happy, satisfied, favored. Verse 2 uses the word blessed again, but it's actually a different Hebrew word. And this one means praised or commended, celebrated. Dropping down to verse 9, you see this phrase, this person is exalted in honor. And that word honor is actually the Hebrew word kabod, which is the word that the Old Testament uses for the glory of God. The glory, the weight, the majesty of God. And collectively, what I hear the psalmist saying is, God is saying to us through the psalmist, look at this person who is this kind of person and who does these kinds of things. This is the person I choose to bless. Do you want honor? Do you want a heritage? this is the kind of person that I want to make truly happy in spite of circumstances. But that's not all, not just honor. But notice verses 2 and 3, you've got two more. You've got mighty descendants in verse 2, and you've got wealth and riches in verse 3. Verse 2, you've got this seed, this lineage, this family line that will continue on to be blessed. And maybe some of you even know a family like that in park where you say, you know, from the grandparents to the parents, to the children, to the grandchildren, this is just a family that they delight in God's word and they walk in God's ways and they, yeah, they're not perfect people, but they are, they're just, they're righteous, they're kind, they're generous and God has just blessed their family and everybody knows who these people are. Or verse three, wealth and riches are in his house. And there's two different words here that just make the point that this righteous person is blessed with super abundance. And you probably know people like that as well. And by the way, let's just pause here. You can't look at rich Christians and say, "Mm -hmm, I I know how they got that way. You know, terrible people don't love God. Because right here, God's like, if you are righteous, one of the ways that I potentially want to bless you is with wealth and riches. So we don't need the the judgment thing. Um, And some of you may know people like this as well, like Christian entrepreneurs or business owners or just people that are independently wealthy. Not that they're seeking wealth, but again, this is coming as a byproduct or as a commendation, okay? But can I pause here for a second and say, life doesn't always work this way. So I don't know if this psalm is rubbing anybody else the wrong way, but I know when I studied this a couple weeks ago, I was putting this together. By this point in the psalm, I was a little bit discouraged because life doesn't always work this way. I know people, you know people that, yeah, they're not perfect, they're not Jesus, but they're doing pretty well at walking with God and loving their neighbor, and they don't have honor, maybe, maybe they're single, or they're experiencing infertility. They don't have the family that's described here, let alone mighty descendants. And they're certainly not rich and super abundant in possessions. In fact, some of them are very, very poor. And so I want to pause here for a second and just address the fact that this doesn't always seem to align with reality. And in fact, oftentimes it doesn't. And I want to say two things. First of all, let's note that this is in a particular collection of psalms that are known as wisdom psalms. So as Jessica read this text earlier a few minutes ago, you may have heard some verses that sound a lot like Proverbs, even more so than psalms, where Proverbs often says, this is the blessing of the righteous, this is the curse of the foolish or the unrighteous. And we encounter something like that here. Okay, so I, I share that by saying a proverbial statement is something that is generally true. It is not a promise. It is not A plus B equals C. Do this, be this, and therefore God will guarantee you this blessing. It's just a generally true statement. That's important, okay? But there's there's something else important here, and that is we all need to acknowledge, even from the lips of Jesus, that there's a kind of honor there's a kind of offspring, there's a kind of wealth that is not temporal, is not physical, and it's actually far more exceedingly valuable than the version of those things that everybody else is seeking. You could walk away from the affirmation and the acclaim of the world and have the honor of God, and it may not make you feel better. You could walk away from the kind of riches that are offered to you through a certain job promotion and lay up your treasures in heaven as Christ called you to, and it won't look the same on paper, but it would be blessing, and it would be blessing from God. And I know personally, I'm thankful for many of you who through park kids or youth or other ways, you don't have the physical offspring that this text seems to promise, but you have the spiritual offspring because you've sown the gospel seed into our children's lives. And you've seen God bring children into the family of his church through this. So you may not always get these commendations, but um, The rest of this message, I'm going to focus on an even bigger concern that I have with this text, okay? Is anybody else getting this from the text? It seems to be saying, be good, do good, and happiness will come to you, right? Be good, do good, and God will accept you, and he'll bless you, and he'll fill your life with good things. And to me, that sounds formulaic, it sounds legalistic, it sounds moralistic, Does it not? I mean, so far, this is a TED Talk, right? So far, I mean, we're going through a psalm, and I'm telling you, this is what the psalm says. But you could go over to Topo or Burton right after the service and get a do-good, be-good bumper sticker and put it on your car and be like, that's what the preacher said, okay? So my biggest fear in preaching a sermon like this is that we would miss this. Christ in the Psalms. Because the psalm that we read this morning is part of Jesus' own hymn book. When he walked this earth, he sang these hymns, these prayers. He he prayed them. And let's go to my last point here, the confidence of the righteous. Because there are a couple statements in this psalm that before you're going out of this place we need to make sure we don't miss them, because we need to ask, ultimately, how is the righteous person righteous? Is it because he or she is simply doing good things and being a nice person and conforming to the law? No, because number one, where does this psalm lead off? Verse one, the confidence of the righteous, first of all, is this is a person who fears the Lord, I know last week Miguel was down here with you preaching through Psalm 111, and he reminded me that Psalm 111 ends with these words, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who practice it have a good understanding. And then note this psalm begins with blessed is the one who fears the Lord. And Miguel probably explained some of this last week, but this word fears like has this huge semantic range. So it starts over here with words like reverence and worship. This is part of what it means to fear the Lord, is I've, I've submitted my life under your life, under your leadership. I fear you. I reverence you. I respect you. And then we come to the kind of this, this middle position, and we have something like awe and wonder, like in the middle of a, a thunderstorm, and you feel that power, and you're like, that is awesome. That is incredible. All the way over here to just dread terror. And this is like when you're a kid and you know you did that thing that your parents told you not to do and it's broken and now you're waiting for dad to get home and find that thing and just destroy you, right? And you dread terror, okay? So what is, which, which of those is the right posture toward a perfectly holy father? Let me illustrate it like this. I, I love to trail run around here But I am very afraid of rattlesnakes and mountain lions, okay? And uh, one of the places I like to trail run is North Table Mountain up above Golden. And sometimes you'll even be at the trailhead, and I'll be like, the such-and-so trail is closed today because of rattlesnake nesting. You're like, awesome, right? You just stoke my fear right before I take off to go running, you know? And sometimes you'll see them. And we've hiked with our kids and seen a lot of rattlesnakes. And um, they're just there by the side of the trail, or they're inching their way across the trail. And sometimes they rattle at you, and sometimes they don't. And uh, so I'm I'm afraid of these things. So what do I do? Well, I run with one earbud in and one out, so I can, I'm just telling myself, I could hear the rattle coming, you know, if I... If, 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 if there were a rattlesnake there. But I'm also, as I'm running, you know, I'm just like kind of running down this dirt path or an old logging road or a trail and jumping over these rocks. And you're just kind of like constantly scanning, you know, way ahead of you, like looking back and forth and back and forth. And you're just looking for anything that looks like a snake and, you know, periodically like looking behind you to make sure that this mountain lion is not stalking you. And, uh, About the time I'm getting over my fear of mountain lions, I read a story in the news that some actual jogger who was off by himself had to punch a mountain lion to death, you know, above Boulder. And I'm like, okay, great. Um, And after I preached this in the Highlands last week, someone um, sent me, like, a a YouTube video of a mountain lion screaming, and it was terrifying. So I'm probably never running again. Um, But uh, my, my point of all that is, like, I'm afraid of rattlesnakes and mountain lions. So what what does that do? Does it paralyze me? Is it like, I'm just going to sit safely at home? No, but the idea, what that fear does to me is it makes me hyper aware. And really, in a sense, that's what it means to fear the Lord. It doesn't mean you're constantly cowering in fear beneath God but it means you're truly coming alive to the eternal and practical realities of how God transforms and motivates anything. It means I'm constantly aware of his presence. I'm constantly aware of his character. I'm constantly aware of his promises. And a good litmus test is just be thinking, is there anything I wouldn't do that I'm doing in my life right now if Jesus of Nazareth were sitting in a chair across the room? Like, would would I talk to people differently, including my own family? Would I change my business practices? Would I go different places on the internet or on my phone than where I'm going now? Would I draw different boundaries with a boyfriend or girlfriend if Jesus of Nazareth were sitting there? Well, the idea of living in the fear of the Lord is just, I'm constantly aware that that God is with me and for me. And there may be certain things I need to stop and other things that I need to start because I'm aware of his holy and gracious and relentlessly loving presence. But this is not enough. It's not enough to fear the Lord because look at verse seven, this person, this righteous person, their confidence is ultimately that they trust in the Lord. See verse seven, why is the person not afraid of bad news? Because he trusts in the Lord. He has confidence in the Lord. And by the way, I want you to note that. This is important. Psalm 112 doesn't say, be a good person, do good things, and only good will come to you. Notice that there's a darkness that needs to be overcome with light. Notice that there's bad news. Notice that there are adversaries. Notice that the very last verse, there are people who are angry at you and envious of you because God's blessing you and not them. So it's not be good, do good, and only good things will come to you. This psalm's very real, but it's saying there, there are challenges. There is brokenness. There is darkness. There is pain. How do you endure through all of that? How do you you look the bad news in the eyes and say, but I'm gonna be okay because I trust in the character and the promises of God. And ultimately, I believe the good news that he loves me, not because of my performance, but in spite of my performance. And this is the key. Can I show you how we're supposed to read this psalm now? If you're reading this, and you're like, okay, ooh, I like the blessings that are described here. I want that. I want to be happy. I want to be rich. I want a bunch of friends and family and honor. It sounds amazing. What do I have to do? Oh, okay. Be righteous. Be generous. Do that. Delight in God's word. Okay, whatever. I can do that. And you're check, 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 check. Got, Got it. Okay, God, where's the blessing? Then we missed it. We're just moralists. What we should do is, is read this psalm, and I kind of have a three-step process. We're, we're reading through this psalm, God calling me to be generous, God calling me to be righteous, to, to build my life by the measure of his word. And I say, I aspire to live that way. Like God, I really want to be that person. But step two, but I'm not right? I'm not. And again, maybe my life's only an inch out over a foot or a half inch or a quarter. inch. Maybe mine's just a millimeter off. But again, extrapolated out over and over and over again across the course of our lifetime, how much do we not conform to the image of God? So we confess, God, I fell short. But then I reread this psalm one more time and I recognize that one day there was a man who walked this earth that perfectly fulfilled every line and letter of this psalm and that is the man Jesus. He was always gracious, he was always merciful, he was always righteous at the same time. He delighted in his father's commandments, he was generous toward the poor, he conformed his life to patterns of justice. And I mentioned earlier this tension between like what, what could feel like, like loosey-goosey generosity and grace and kindness and all this stuff, and over here we got righteousness and justice. Well, there was a moment in time that beautifully demonstrates how these two seemingly polar opposite things come together, and that is in the cross of Jesus Christ, where he says, because I am holy, because I am righteous, your sin has to be paid for. It has to be. There has to be wrath that comes down because you've broken my law. But then Jesus says, in grace and mercy, I will pay the debt for you. I will take the beating for you. I'll take the death that you deserve so you can receive life. You know how ultimately we get all the blessings of this psalm is not by you and I pulling ourselves up by our bootstrap and being like, be good, do good. But it's by saying, Jesus, I fear you. Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I trust you. And I want this picture to be a picture of my life, but it's not. God help me. Whether I'm coming from a legalistic background or a more licentious, libertine background, we all meet in Jesus and we fear the Lord and we trust the Lord and we experience his gospel transformation in our lives. That's how we get to look like this person in the psalm. And we get all the riches, all the offspring, all the honor, not that we earn, but that he earned for us. So I take you back to this theme. He's saying, I want you to be happy, okay, I really do. True happiness is not ditching the law of God and having new standards because that's the cool thing to do now. True happiness is the byproduct of this faith. Now we know it's faith in Jesus that transforms both our current lifestyle and our future hope. Father, we praise you for your word. We praise you most of all for Jesus. Lord, we do aspire to be countercultural people we we nobody here just wants to be that obnoxious rule follower who gets it all right but in the worst sort of way no one wants their tone to just be strident and self-righteous and religious but at the same time we don't want to be so gracious so nice that we don't care about your law that we don't care about consequences that are coming to people that we love because they have cast aside your law. or we, we simultaneously want to be gracious and merciful and generous, filled with delight, but we do want to be righteous and just, and we want to be people who seek justice on behalf of our neighbors. But we confess that we fall short, and in this moment before we take communion together, we just want to pause and confess where you have highlighted maybe some areas in thought, word, or deed by things that we have done or by things that we have left undone, where our lives right now do not conform to the image of Jesus. We lay that before you. We confess these things. We want to turn from these things. Thank you, Jesus, that now we can go back through Psalm 112 and where it says he or him we can insert the name Jesus Jesus is gracious, merciful and righteous Jesus extends his hand to the poor Jesus delights in his commands thank you for blessing us where we don't deserve to be blessed, help us to live in a continual awareness of who you are and who we are in you, for Christ's sake. Amen.
0: Thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. If you enjoyed this, make sure you share it with someone. We'd also love to hear from you on social media. Find us with at Park Church Denver. Lastly, more resources and info are available online at parkchurch.org. Peace and love.